The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Modern Management of Myelofibrosis, Practical Perspectives Surrounding the Use of JAK Inhibitors and Novel Therapeutics in the Peritransplant Setting. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BJB860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to the session today. This is Modern Management of Myelofibrosis, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Serge Verstapik, who will be uh, working with me. My name is Jean Palmer, um, and we will be discussing the management of myelofibrosis, especially in the peritransplant setting. So for today's agenda, we have a couple of different sessions. So the first session is to help understand the evidence-based selection and sequencing of JAK inhibitor-based therapy. In the second session, we will explore the exploration of the broad shape of care in myelofibrosis, principles of diagnosis and management, and the role of JAK inhibitors in the pre-transplant setting. So I would like to introduce uh, Serge Verstafik. He's a professor of medicine at MD Anderson, and he is going to discuss with us perspectives on selecting and sequencing JAK inhibitors and next steps with emerging treatment strategies. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for coming to this early morning session. It looks like your friends and family all together. We should all gather here in front of the podium so we can talk about the cases later on after presentations. So my presentation is on a topic of what's happening right now to give you an update on uh, JAK inhibitors and new modalities. All right, so... Let's see where we are with the JAK inhibitors first. We all know that underlying biological problem in all patients with MPN is hyperactivity of the JAK-SAT pathway. Is it ET, is it PV, or myelofibrosis? It's the same. There are other factors that would contribute to aggressiveness of the disease. But we use JAK inhibitors. I'm talking today about myelofibrosis. We now have three approved JAK inhibitors, as you can see on the left slide, on the left side of the slide. Ruxolitinib 2011, Fedratinib 2019, and about a month ago, Pacritinib. And of course, Pacritinib is different because, as you see, it is approved for patients with platelets below 50. It's a non-myelosuppressive JAK inhibitor. Ruxolitinib and Fedratinib do cause some thrombocytopenia and anemia and are not supposed to be given to patients with platelets below 50. In the middle of the slide, there are two drugs, two JAK inhibitors that are still in development but I am going to talk about mamelotinib because we just learned about a month ago as well about the phase three study results in the second line setting after first JAK inhibitor where mamelotinib was developed and it's being developed as a drug for anemia, which is completely different than what we would expect. So let's review a few slides on the ruxolitinib just to remind everybody about the highlights. We all know that it improves the symptoms and the spleen. This is a summary of one of the phase three studies, COMFORT two study, where ruxolitinib was compared to best available therapy, which was mostly hydroxyurea. So that's why ruxolitinib became the first line. This is a waterfall. All the patients, as you can see in the orange, were treated with ruxolitinib, and 97% of them have some degree of improvement in the spleen, which was not the same in those that were treated with best value therapy slash hydroxyurea in blue. 
the same type of response applies to the inflammatory symptoms. Now, this study was for people with a big spleen and the platelets above 100, where on the left side, on the left side, from the JAM trial, which is 2,200 patients in 26 countries around the globe, about a couple of years ago, on the left side, I show response in people with the platelets below 100, so 50 to 100 in orange, and in blue, response in patients with platelets above 100. The bottom line is that patients with lower platelets, 50 to 100, do respond well as well. And on the right side is a comparison from this very large study in response in the symptoms between the patients that had a big spleen and did not have splenomegaly at all. This is on the right side. In other words, presence of the spleen is not prerequisite for improvement in the quality of life, right? So it can work in patients with lower platelets, and it does work for the symptoms in people without a big spleen. In 2014, we also learned about the ability of ruxolitinib to extend life. That is now on the label for its use since August in 2014 from analysis of comfort studies saying that people exposed to ruxolitinib live longer for a few years. This is recent from Medicare uh, database, which is, as you all know, a large database here in federal, at the federal level in the United States, looking at the outcome of the patients at different time points and at different therapies. So if you just focus on the curves, these are survival curves, what we see in the green color is the survival of the patients before 2010 with myelofibrosis in the, this Medicare database. In the middle, it's the orange color, survival of the patients, post-ruxolitinib approval, that is from 2011 till now, but without exposure to ruxolitinib. So I should congratulate all of us. We are doing a better job in treating our patients with myelofibrosis since 2010. Better care, better supportive care, better identification of the patients. And much more is being done for patients with myelofibrosis since 2010. The blue color is the patients since 2010 that were exposed to ruxolitinib. In other words, exposure to ruxolitinib gives you extra kick on the survival benefit. So it does confirm what was seen in post hoc analysis from the comfort studies, and that's why this is on the label for its use. The next drug that was approved was fedratinib, based on Jakarta study, which was again placebo-controlled randomized study in frontline setting for patients with platelets above 50. No below 50 in any of these studies, above 50. But the point of this slide is to divide that group of people from Jakarta study into two groups. On the left side, patients with platelets between 50 to 100. On the right side, patients with baseline platelets above 100. There is little difference between the two. So it can be given fedratinib at a dose of 400 milligrams without dose adjustments to all the patients with platelets above 50. No dose adjustments, unlike ruxolitinib, where you do need the dose adjust at the beginning based on the platelet number. The survival benefit is unique to uh, JAK inhibitors in general. Not to one of the JAK inhibitors, but to all of them. And this is now coming up through assessment of the longevity of the patients on therapy. Looking at the Jagarta study, this was presented last summer. You can see progression-free survival between the patients, this is on the curves, between the patients exposed to fedratinib or placebo. 
progression-free survival, not overall survival, because the study was cut short. As you may remember, Fedratini was for about 10 months on clinical hold because of, of a possibility of causing some central nervous system toxicity, which I will explain on the next slide. But the, the bottom line of this slide is that there is a possibility with fedratinib, as is with ruxolitinib, to potentially prolong survival of the patients. Let's talk a little bit about these non-hematological toxicities with fedratinib. It is a relatively new drug, approved in 2019. There are two differences between the fedratinib and ruxolitinib on non-hematological toxicity, and this is that about two-thirds of the patients may have low-grade GI irritation, which would be nausea or diarrhea. Frequency and severity of the GI side effects is reduced as you give patients preventative anti-nausea and anti-diarrhea medications. So patients' symptoms and problems, as you can see in the bars, go down, and that does not, does not interfere with the delivery of fedratinib. Regarding this anecdotal experience where we had uh, Wernicke encephalopathy reported, which is central nervous system toxicity, possibly related to the, uh, the thiamine deficiency. Uh, what we do about that, this is a black box warning for fedratinib, is we monitor thiamine level. You have to monitor it before prescribing fedratinib, supplement it, and then monitor it occasionally during the therapy with fedratinib. In everyday practice, I should say, I give my patients thiamine all the time. I measure it before, I give it if necessary, but I, I tell them, just take it. It's a relatively inexpensive one pill a day, not to have any problems with, again, occasional Wernicke encephalopathy. The novel drug is pacritinib. This is really something that we should pay attention to. It was approved for patients with platelets below 50. However, the study that I'm going to briefly summarize here is for patients with platelets below 100. Well, why not uh, having a label for patients with platelets below 100? Because the area of unmet need, so-called, was patients with platelets below 50, for which there was no therapy to be given at all. We'll see in the future whether this will change. But for now, I'm going to show you sub-analysis of this study, exactly what led to its approval. A randomized study between the three arms, as you can see, and the approved dose is 200 milligrams twice a day, the light blue color on this slide. Patients with platelets below 100, everybody below 100. And this is the most important slide for pacritinib. What do we expect? On the left side, intent to treat analysis, again, everybody with platelets below 100, it may be zero, transfusion-dependent patients, it doesn't matter. You can see on the left side, spleen volume response, first set of bars, 22 versus 3, and the second set of bars, 35 versus 14 for the quality of life improvement. If we focus only on patients with platelets below 50, that's on the right side, 29 versus 3 for the spleen, and 26 versus 9 for the symptoms. In other words, the platelet number does not matter for use of pacritinib. Furthermore, being non-malosuppressive, we look at the anemia in these patients, and I'm happy to say that there might be some possibility of helping patients with anemia as well. Look at the left side, first set of bars, clinical improvement in hemoglobin levels in patients with anemia. 
you know, that the thrombocytopenia and anemia usually go hand to hand. So most of these people were anemic. And you can see there is a possibility for settled bars on the left side in improving the anemia. The middle says reduction or a reduction in the transfusion burden. And finally, on the right side, transfusion burden in patients who received more than one transfusion on a study. This is the number of transfusions decreases in a light blue color on therapy with pacritinib. So definitely does not appear to be myelosuppressive and potential exists for some patients to improve red blood cell count. So what side effects do we need to watch for? If you look in a table, the number one is diarrhea and number three is nausea. In about half of the patients, there is a low-grade GI irritation. Like for fedratinib, may require preventative anti-nausea and anti-diarrheal medications. It does not prevent patients from benefiting from pacritinib. The dose is 200 mg twice a day. No dose adjustments necessary for any baseline characteristics of the patients. In the table, you may see thrombocytopenia or anemia, but remember, those patients were already anemic and thrombocytopenic, and no much difference between best available therapy arm or pacritinib in that regard. On the right side, bleeding and cardiac events were at one point in development of pacritinib significant in terms of leading to Okay, uh, leading to clinical fold of pacritinib for some months. That was lifted, and as you see now, FDA approved it. But you don't want to have on pacritinib people who are on the blood thinners or had the recent events of a bleeding. That is something written in the small print that came with approval of pacritinib. So, where are we now with the uh, uh, guidelines? Where do we expect things to change? On the right side, we have platelets above 50, uh, patients who are not transplant candidates, and we're going to talk about that uh, in discussion. Ruxolitinib or fedratinib are listed as Category 1 evidence-based drugs to be used for control of spleen and symptoms. Pacritinib is coming along, and it will be possibly placed for patients with platelets below 50. The one aspect is that you can stack one jack inhibitors after the other. There is no reason to say if one didn't work, the other will not. There is no such a, a thing that there is a resistance to a class of the drugs. In fact, there is a very solid evidence of activity of fedratinib after ruxolitinib. This is the called, called the Jakarta 2 study. That was a study open when it was done many years ago to anybody, any patient who was previously exposed to ruxolitinib. More modern reanalysis of that study with specific definitions of ruxolitinib failure is shown here and in the red color in this complicated table, perhaps in red color is the bottom line information that perhaps is very useful in every practice. What do we expect from fedratinib after ruxolitinib? A 31% response rate in spleen and 27 in the symptoms. So I would say about 30% response rate in a second-line setting. It's pretty good response. Now, in that setting, as it was shown earlier on by me for ruxolitinib and fedratinib in a front-line setting, there is, again, evidence that there might be prolongation of life with a good control of the signs and symptoms of the disease. This was presented at ASH a few months ago, where from Flatiron Health, the national-wide database from Europe, 
uh, and the United States, uh, the comparison was made between the patients that were treated with fedratinib in the second-line setting and those that did not. Again, suggestion of a life extension through anti-proliferative and anti-inflammatory potential of JAK inhibitors, we see improvement in the body composition, improvement in the metabolism, improvement even in organ function, kidney function, for example, improves on roxalitinib. And that's why I am not surprised to see that JAK inhibitors make people live longer. And finally, the momelotinib, a JAK inhibitors that is different. This is a study in a second-line setting called Momentum Study that finished. Uh, this was for patients that was previously treated with ruxolitinib and anemic and not feeling well. Scope of the benefit moved from the splenous symptoms to anemia and symptoms. Blinded randomized study between momelotinib, as you see in the middle of the slide, and danazole, anabolic steroids, which we use for anemia and symptoms. This study in a second-line setting led to these results. There are six different points here. The first one is a response in the symptoms, superiority for the symptoms. If you go through the table, first line is the symptomatic improvement. The second line is non-inferiority for transfusion-independent state at 24 weeks of therapy after six months of therapy. And then if you just move down the table, superiority for a spleen response, for symptoms uh, development over time and transfusion independence development over time. A lot of numbers here. This is the most important to me to look at. This is the transfusion independence, which I value the most when I talk about anemia drugs. Uh, in the bars, you can see on the left side, a baseline transfusion independence rates between the two arms. After six months of therapy, 31% versus 20% between the momelotinib and danazole. In other words, 18% of the patients became transfusion independent during the six months of therapy with momelotinib. That's why we expect this drug to be approved in very near future as a drug to improve the anemia and symptoms, not the spleen and symptoms. It can improve the spleen, but the main point here is anemia and symptoms. And therefore, one can position JAK inhibitors in this way in the future. On the left side, first-line therapies, we see platelets below 50, platelets above 50, and then the transfusion-dependent patients where we can possibly envision mamelotinib being a choice. And as I said, one exposure to JAK inhibitor does not prevent the second exposure. And that's why in the second-line setting on the right side, we again have pacritinib, fedratinib, and momelotinib licit. And I should say, you can even consider rechallenging patients, rechallenging patients with ruxolitinib. Again, it has been done and published as active approach. In addition, there are many other investigational agents, which are here listed on the left, I'm sorry, on the right lower part. The investigational agents that are being either combined with the JAK inhibitor or developed on its own. So let's see briefly what's happening with these investigational agents. Not going to show you this in detail, but uh, overview is very good to understand the concepts, what's happening in the field of drug development. First is to understand that the biology is complicated. Ten years ago, we learned about the JAK-STAT pathway hyperactivity, and I started talking about this with my first slide. 
there is much more there that is wrong. And so this just shows uh, to some degree, I should say, not all, what else is wrong. And there are white boxes here where the new medications in development are listed. And so let's just take a, in two slides, a quick look what's happening. I'm going to talk about the phase three studies only. Phase three studies for possible approval of new medication. Number one on the top is glucopatacept. Area of unmet need, anemia. We're going to have mamelotinib possibly there for people who become anemic over time and you can treat them. But is there a possibility of combinations? Adding glucopatacept to therapy with JAK inhibitor in people who require transfusions. Phase three randomized study is underway in that setting. Ruxolitinib exposed patients benefit on splenic symptoms requiring transfusions are randomized between the placebo and luspatisib for approval. Bet inhibitor, the second one, pelabresib, as is the case with the next one at the bottom, Navitoclux. Combination with the JAK inhibitors, either from the very beginning or in people who are suboptimally responding to a JAK inhibitor, you add one of those and you boost the spleen and symptoms response. Make it better. Parsaclasib, the first on this slide, is similar. Similar approach. Adding it to people who are not doing well on ruxolitinib or from the day one. Two phase three randomized study for possible approval or parsaclasib, PI3 kinase delta inhibitor. And the finally, something completely novel in terms of what the scope of the goal is. Imetalstat, in the middle of the slide. Phase three randomized study in a second line setting comparing imetalstat, telomerase inhibitor, IV medications every three weeks versus base available therapy for prolongation of life. First study ever with the goal of prolonging life, imetalstat. I thank you so much for your attention. I hope this was a useful review for you, for your own practice, and to get a sense where the field is moving. Right. Good morning. Thank you, Serge. That was a great way to uh, introduce JAK inhibitors and some of the new therapies. And now I'll go on to talking about bone marrow transplant. So what I would like to cover in this talk is, first of all, the approach to bone marrow transplant for patients with myelofibrosis. Review the prognostic scoring systems and understand how different risk factors can contribute to outcomes. I would also like to review some post-transplant complications and how we can manage those. So transplant definitely plays a role in the management of myelofibrosis, as we can see from the NCCN guidelines in the areas rounded in red, which I apologize because it's probably not very good for people with colorblindness. But when you look at the areas surrounded in red, there's multiple areas where allogeneic stem cell transplant is considered. We can also see this when we look at CIBMTR data. In reviewing data from the last two decades, we see that number one, transplants have increased quite a bit. And we have also improved in our outcomes of transplant. The EBMT and ELN uh, released a paper reviewing the patient selection criteria. All patients with intermediate to or high-risk disease, according to IPSS, DIPSS, or DIPSS+, an age of less than 70 should at least be considered as candidates for stem cell transplant. Patients with intermediate one-risk disease and age of less than 65 should be considered as candidates if they present with refractory, transfusion-dependent anemia, a percentage of blasts in the peripheral blood of greater than 2%, or adverse cytogenetics. Patients with low-risk disease should not be considered for transplant. 
for allogeneic stem cell transplant, and they should be monitored and evaluated for transplant when disease progression occurs. So what are some barriers to transplant? There are a couple different uh, studies here. First of all, on the left side, this was a survey study that was done through patient advocacy websites, and there was 129 patients with myelofibrosis who responded. Less than half of these patients had been referred for a transplant consult, and of those who went to a transplant consult, less than half of them wanted to proceed. A limitation with, of this study was we didn't have the clinical data on these patients, so many of them might have been lower-risk patients. There was another study done on the right side, which, looks at, which was a single-center study where they reviewed their own database to look for patients who were transplant-eligible. They weeded out the patients who had a prohibitive, co uh, prohibitive comorbidity, and then they had 116 patients who remained. 14 of these patients de declined getting HLA typed. And of the patients who did get HLA type, two-thirds of them had a well-matched donor. About a quarter of them had a mismatch or haploidentical donor. And there was a small number that had no donor identified. What was surprising to me was when you looked at the upfront transplant and whether it was performed or not. And again, this is a center that provides excellent care for myelofibrosis and transplant. Only half of the patients who had a well-matched donor proceeded to transplant upfront. And... Over half of them, in fact, two-thirds, did not proceed to transplant when they had a mismatched or haploidentical donor. When we looked at salvage transplant performed um, upon progression from ruxolitinib or the like, then we saw that less than half the patients at that point even proceeded to transplant. So you see there's a number of patients that did not proceed to transplant, and presumably a lot of this is by choice. So how do I approach these patients? I see a number of these patients, um, and there's three, three principles that I look at. First of all, it's really important that patients understand their disease risk. There's a lot of patient advocacy websites, a lot of blogs. They hear a lot of really scary stuff about transplant. So I think one of the first things I like to do is evaluate all the different risk stratification scores we have to really help them understand what we expect their prognosis to be and understand the limitations of these scoring systems as well. I like to explore the patient's values and goals. Some patients are very specific that they really prefer quality versus quantity of time. And, you, you know, and that's one of their major reasons for not proceeding with transplant. And finally, what are some peritransplant interventions that we can do that can impact transplant outcomes? So when we look at these scoring systems, there's the DIPSS, which is the Dynamic International Prognostic Scoring System, and the DIPS Plus scoring. This scoring system was designed for patients with primary myelofibrosis. It includes factors such as age, symptoms, white blood cell count, hemoglobin, and blasts in the peripheral blood. And from that can generate low, intermediate one, intermediate two, or high risk. The DIPS Plus took into account three additional factors, including adverse karyotype, platelets of less than 100, and red blood cell transfusions. From there, we can generate a scoring system of either low, intermediate one, intermediate two, or high risk, and the median survival in months varies for these different groups. It is important to remember that in that previous slide, when we looked at the EBMT recommendations, they do recommend it for intermediate two and high-risk disease. For secondary myelofibrosis, this normogram was created, and it's actually a normogram that I do use fairly frequently in practice. I pull it up online and can show the patients. Um, and in this score, they, this 
this one is made for patients with secondary myelofibrosis. So people who have myelofibrosis following essential thrombocythemia or polycythemia vera. This takes into account hemoglobin, platelet count, peripheral blasts, calreticulin wild type, and constitutional symptoms. When I refer to calreticulin wild type, I refer to the fact that there are three different driver mutations. And we know that there's a JAK2, which was discovered in 2005, MPL, and calreticulin. And calreticulin has type 1 and type 2. What we know is that calreticulin has a very good prognosis. So people who have a type 1 calreticulin mutation tend to have a good prognosis. Therefore, if it's wild type, it would suggest they either had the JAK2, the MPL, or were, had no driver mutation, all of which can be associated with a worse prognosis. And this one also takes into account constitutional symptoms. And then it's a normogram that you plot the score based on the age, and it comes up with in high, intermediate, two, intermediate, one, and low risk, which uh, translates to different survival estimations. Now, in more recent years, we've really tried to understand the impact of somatic mutations on um, or non-driver mutations on patients who have myelofibrosis, and we're looking at these mutations in a number of different disease types. So from this, the MIP70 and the MIP70 plus were generated. And this was generated um, using cohorts from both Mayo Clinic Rochester as well as a cohort in Italy. And the key elements of this, and again, this slide's a little bit confusing, so just to walk you through it, and the key elements that are in the gray box, that's the ones that are used for the MIP70 score. The key elements for the MIP70 plus are highlighted in red. And again, this uses some of the very similar things that we see in a lot of the other um, prognostic scoring systems, including hemoglobin, white blood cell platelets, et cetera. But the one thing that's unique in this one is it does include these high-risk molecular mutations such as ASXL1, EZH2, SRSF2, and IDH1 or 2. And you can see that based on the top, A and B are the um, survival curves for the scoring systems for patients in the MIP70, and in the red box below is the MIP70+. They introduced the version 2.0, which incorporates several new features. First of all, there's a very high-risk karyotype that's included. They also included U2AF1 mutation status, which is another mutation associated with a higher-risk prognosis. Sex and severity adjusted hemoglobin thresholds, so they divided it into 8 to 10, and 10, uh, below 10 and below 8, excuse me. And they defined five prognostic categories ranging from very low to very high. And they, again, there's a new definition for high-risk karyotype that's in the green box on the bottom. And you can see that when using the MIP70+, plus, which is the different colors that are present on the chart, and then you look down below at the MIP70 version 2, the MIP70 version 2 plus, MIP70 plus version 2 is a little bit more granular in helping divide these patients into risk categories. So how do these impact transplant outcomes? So there's been a couple different studies looking at the impact of DIPSS score on transplant. And the most recent one was a large uh, registry study that compared patients who were in the CIBMTR to a retrospective uh, registry from 14 academic centers. And this looked at patients who received a transplant or did not receive a transplant. The patients were collected, data was collected from between the years of 2000 to 2014. And you'll see that 50, 551 had a transplant and 1,377 did not. The median time of follow-up was fairly similar between the two groups. And one thing that is very notable, especially in hearing from Surge, the difference in survival with rexalitinib 
is that ruxolitinib was not approved till around 2011. So it was the last three years of this study that people actually had access to ruxolitinib. If we looked at the ruxolitinib exposure um, in these patients, only 10% of them were exposed to ruxolitinib prior to, uh, prior to transplant, whereas 30% of the patients in the non-transplant arm were exposed to ruxolitinib. And as you can see, in most of these, in, in what they, uh, how to review it, I don't know if there's a way I can point, but um, if you look on the left side, there's the top, um, there's low risk, which would be sort of the first on the upper left side of um, survival curves. There's the intermediate one risk, which is on the upper right side. Um, and then there is uh, the, actually, sorry, I had it backwards since I'm looking at it, but, um, and then there's the intermediate two risk and the high risk. And intermediate one risk, intermediate two, and high risk all showed an advantage, survival advantage to transplant up front. Or actually, we don't know that it's up front, so I just will say transplant. So people want to also know, well, what about these next-generation sequencing? What about all these somatic mutations we look at? So there was a study that was published, a single-center study, looking at 110 patients who underwent transplant that, who were uniformly conditioned, had a uniform graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis. And what they found in their study was that single mutations did not predict outcomes, but if they used a composite MIPSS score, that it was associated with non-relapse mortality and overall survival. Now, there is one thing I want to point out on this slide that will be important um, when considering um, the next slide that I have. And number that is on the top survival curve on the left-hand side, the overall survival based on donor type. You'll see that if you look at the, the red curve and the blue dotted curve, those are both the higher curves. There's a related and matched unrelated. And then the green dotted line, which drops quite significantly in terms of survival, is the mismatched unrelated. So this leads us to another scoring system, the MTSS, which was generated using the EBMT database. And this took into account seven clinical, molecular, and transplant-specific independent factors for survival. So it took into account white blood cell count, platelet count. We're seeing a trend here. Um, absence of CalR, MPL mutation, performance status, age at time of transplant, HLA mismatched unrelated donor, which again, I want to point out that patients with myelofibrosis do appear to have somewhat of an intolerance to that mismatch, more so than we would see, expect to see for other transplant indications, um, and ASXL1. One unique part of this scoring system is, number one, it does take into account the donor type, which I think is really important because when somebody comes in to talk about transplant, we do want to think about that. And it's also applicable to both primary and secondary myelofibrosis. And based on the scoring, you can see the breakdown of the outcomes. So let's switch shift to what can we do peritransplant. One of the biggest issues we see peritransplant that creates a lot of stress is management of the spleen. So what do we know about the spleen size in transplant? So there was an EBMT registry study that was published last year that included 1,195 transplants. 202 of these patients had splenectomy. The remainder did not. If you looked at the entire group, Having a splenectomy resulted in no difference in overall survival or non-relapse mortality. However, if you isolated this to patients who had spleens of greater than 15 centimeters, there was a statistically significant benefit in overall survival and non-relapse mortality. However, there was no change in relapse risk. This was another study that was looked at. And again, I want to point out that these are the patients who made it to transplant. So we don't know if we took patients before transplant who we said were starting with the spleen 
management and we, let's say they got a splenectomy and had a very became very debilitated they wouldn't have even come up on this this um these studies so this is 85 patients who underwent a transplant um 39 underwent splenectomy and half of the splenectomized patients had a significant complication in this study they did not see a statistically significant difference in non-relapse mortality or overall survival but you do see a trend in that direction so the next thing is to, one of the other ways to shrink the spleen is to use JAK inhibitors. And, and so this study, this slide, the purpose of it is basically to show that the NCCN guidelines suggest that ruxolitinib or fedratinib may be continued to the near of the start of conditioning therapy for the improvement of splenomegaly and other disease-related symptoms. There have been multiple studies looking at this, and this is just a chart of some of the different studies that were done looking at the use of JAK inhibitors up to the time of transplant, and we see um, reasonable rates of graft-versus-host disease, as well as fairly low rates of treatment-related mortality. This study I actually really like because it was a registry study, but they did actually collect additional data from centers to get the information they needed. And they looked at 586 patients, and it was interestingly divided about half and half of who had prior ruxolitinib exposure and who did not. They were fairly well-matched groups. The differences that were significant included that fact that there were more intermediate two and high-risk patients who received ruxolitinib, more patients had a matched unrelated donor who received ruxolitinib, and the interval time from diagnosis to the time of transplant was shorter in um, the patients who did not have ruxolitinib. And of the ruxolitinib-treated patients, um, about almost 90% of them were treated up to the time of their transplant. So when we look at the reason that Ruxolit, what happened with Ruxolitinib, so what was the outcome of these patients? 23% had stopped at some point before transplant, but not for transplant reasons, for other reasons. 13% had a spleen response of greater than 50% at the time of transplant. 34% had a spleen response of less than 50%, and 54% had no spleen response or had lost their spleen response at the time of transplant. So this this starts to answer the question of what do we do with these patients who are in ruxolitinib? Do we continue them and let them enjoy their, their quality of life and transplant them when they progress? Or do we try to transplant them in the setting that they're actually having a very good response? And when they looked at different outcomes, they looked at event-free survival, relapse, and overall survival. And event-free survival was improved when patients who are responders to ruxolitinib as compared to those who were not exposed to ruxolitinib or those who had lost the response to ruxolitinib. You see a trend towards that benefit in both relapse and overall survival, but it did not reach statistical significance. It is notable that the risk of graft failure was higher in patients who had no response or lost the response to ruxolitinib as compared to those who did not, were not exposed to ruxolitinib or those who went into transplant with a favorable response to ruxolitinib. So if ruxolitinib works so well after, before transplant, then can it work during transplant? Those of us who transplant know that when you start to taper off the ruxolitinib prior to transplant, there's a, some patients who will experience a rebound of their symptoms. And we always worry whether that inflammatory cytokine storm impacts their future development of graft-versus-host disease or other negative outcomes associated with transplant. So in this study, they actually use ruxolitinib pre-transplant, starting at day minus 14 or longer if they had already been on it, throughout the transplant up until one year out from transplant. And in doing this, they noted very good rates of one-year survival, progression-free survival, et cetera. 
um, and very acceptable rates of relapse and non-relapse mortality, which would be in the range of what we would expect. Now, the role of newer JAK inhibitors in the transplant setting is still yet to be clarified, but I think will be very favorable. Vidratinib is one of the drugs, and, and again, these are the drugs that Serge just discussed. But pacritinib and momolotinib, especially with their um, benefits with patients with low platelets and anemia, I think can be particularly helpful, especially in the peritransplant setting where they are very challenged with low blood counts. So post-transplant, first of all, what happens with relapse post-transplant? I think the main point of this study is to note that patients who had a molecular relapse and received a donor lymphocyte infusion had a very good response. 100% of them responded. Whereas when you look at salvage DLI and a second transplant, that response rate drops. However, it's notable that there is a response rate. So even in patients with overt relapse or overt relapse who fail a DLI can benefit from either a DLI or a second transplant. This was a retrospective study that was done on relapse patients. And they looked at patient at approaches, including the DLI alone, chemotherapy in a DLI, second transplant, um, DLI in a second transplant. And it, basically, all of the outcomes are fairly similar. There's no difference between them. The one thing that this study did note is that relapses pre-seven months had worse outcomes than those who had a relapse post-seven months, which isn't that surprising. What happens to quality of life after transplant? This is a prospective evaluation using two centers that evaluated patients who underwent stem cell transplant, quality of life measures, including FACT-BMT, um, as well as the MPN-SAF, which measures, measures symptoms for myelofibrosis, were measured. And of note, the quality of life did not decrease substantially. It, in, in day 30, of course, everyone felt really miserable. At day 100, they started to feel better. But at one year, you saw very similar, if not improved, quality of life based on these validated uh, measurements. Additionally, myelofibrosis-specific symptoms were significantly improved after transplant, at least at one time point. But most importantly is at one year, 61% of the patients reported feeling better than they did prior to transplant. Therefore, when patients start to talk about, well, I'm really worried about the impact it'll have on my quality of life, at least I have some data that can support that that's not necessarily the case for everybody. And then what is our long-term outlook for the patients who receive transplant? This was a landmark registry study that was done at two years following transplant. And for patients who are two-year survivor, survivors, their overall and disease-free survival were 74 and 64% respectively. And in those patients who are less than 45, their 10-year survival was 86%. Late relapse was a leading cause of death, which is very similar to what we see for myelodysplastic syndrome and AML. Higher risk of mortality, older age, secondary myelofibrosis, the male gender, and no GBHD before the time of landmark. So in summary, under, when approaching these patients, first of all, understanding risk is critical when counseling a patient. To be able to provide fairly um, substantial prognostic scoring systems, I think, can be very beneficial to patients when talking about what we expect from their disease and why transplant may benefit them. Pre-transplant spleen management, either surgically or with ruxolitinib, may provide a benefit or, in the case of ruxolitinib, probably provides a benefit. Following transplant, relapse remains an issue. And it is important and the thing to leave with is survivors following transplant can experience a durable and quality remission. So it is something that we should continue to offer patients. And with that, I will close and I will, we will go over some of the casebook discussions where Serge and I can discuss different issues with myelofibrosis. So casebook one, John is a 53-year-old male with newly diagnosed myelofibrosis. Spleen is 16 centimeters. And he has a lot of abdominal symptoms. He has a lot of constitutional symptoms. 
anemia, a higher white blood cell count, and a platelet count that's less than 50. And of note, he has a JAK2 mutation as well as TET2 and ASXL1. So what is the optimal course for this patient, Serge? As we know, we always look at the blood count when decide which therapy to prescribe in terms of which JAK inhibitor to do. And with platelets below 50, and there are 48 here, Pacritinib is obvious choice. This is on-label uh, JAK inhibitor. Ruxolitinib and Fedratinib are not supposed to be given to patients with platelets below 50. Perhaps we did in off-label setting, but now that Pacritinib is officially approved, and I would suspect that soon enough it's going to be shown on NCCN guidelines, that would be my choice in this setting. The real question is what if the platelets are, for example, 78? What do we do then? Do we then do ruxolitinib, fedratinib, or we use pacritinib off-label? Because for pacritinib, it doesn't really matter whether it's 78 or 48. That is the, uh, the gray area here that uh, yeah. one will have to decide on the spot which one to use. There might be some other variables that you may look at. The GI, for example, problem. If the patient already has a GI problem, perhaps the medication that causes GI problem should not be the one. Um, if the anemia is a problem, perhaps the patient would benefit more from non-malosuppressive JAK inhibitor, um, acritinib. Uh, so for this one, it's relatively simple in my mind. I'm more uh, puzzled with the patients that have platelets between 50 and 100. We have choices. Yep, I agree. So moving on to the second casebook, John is a 53-year-old gentleman with newly diagnosed myelofibrosis. Again, very similar in terms of spleen, abdominal symptoms, uh, bone pain, night sweats, fatigue, a hemoglobin of 9.5, white blood cell count of 24, and platelets of 102 with 2% blast in the peripheral blood. He also has the same mutational profile. What is the optimal course of action for this patient? So ruxolitinib or fedratinib would be um, my approach. But since you had such a wonderful review, uh, how about the splenectomy or immediate transplant? I still would probably go with the JAK inhibitor first just because of the complication rate of splenectomies. If I think that those studies that look at splenectomy and show benefit are probably somewhat biased in the fact that these are the patients who actually made it to transplant. We don't know about what happened to the patients who maybe got a splenectomy and had lots of complications and were stuck in the hospital and never made it to transplant. So I think in the, when we have the opportunity to use a JAK inhibitor to improve their spleen sites, that should certainly be the first choice. Okay. And in a patient like this, I imagine we could use either ruxolitinib or fedratinib and would probably go to transplant. Okay. Um, Robert is a 76-year-old male on my, with myelofibrosis who's currently on ruxolitinib at 20 milligrams twice daily. He has an enlarging spleen now at 16 centimeters with abdominal symptoms. Mild symptoms such as night sweats and fatigue, and he had the following CBC and 2% blast in his peripheral blood, and again, the same mutational profile. Well, how would you approach this patient? Uh, this is a little bit more complicated. So patient is on active therapy. He's on a pretty good dose of 20 milligrams twice a day, ruxolitinib. I should say from my own experience, increasing the ruxolitinib dose from 20 to 25 does little for the patient. It's just a percentage-wise, it's not much of an increase. The patient has been on it, uh, oroxolitinib, for quite some time. 
typically with jack inhibitors, the best uh, what you can get out of any of this is at the beginning, during the first three to six months, not much later. So I'm not much in favor to go to 25 twice a day. Pedratinib has very solid data in this setting in people who don't have too much of anemia or thrombostopenia because it can worsen that. So that makes sense. Pacritin, we talked about that as a choice in people with plates below 50, but again, below 100 data exists. That was the PERSIST-2 study. Um, I guess Fedratinib perhaps would be leading the pack for me and then Pacritinib is an option. How about immediate transplant? Well, you know, I think it really depends on the center and their degree of comfort with it, as well as the patient's preference, of course. Um, you know, at our center, we usually cut people, you know, don't do transplants after the age of 75, but I know that there are plenty of centers that do, especially in appropriately selected patients. So I think that that would be, that would be a very um, interesting discussion with the patient. I think it's also important to note that when we look at post-rexalitinib failure outcomes, patients tend to do fairly poorly. So that would probably also come into part of the discussion when thinking about what to do moving forward. You see, the last option, clinical trial, now that we have so many studies where you add another agent to ruxolitinib, and there is a good track record of a success because we have phase three studies yep. with Navitoclax, Perabersib, and uh, Parciclisib. So they did well in phase two studies where you added. If you have a study open, maybe that's the way to go. I agree. I agree. Whenever we can get patients on clinical trial, especially in cases like this, I think that's definitely the way to go. All right, Henry is a 75-year-old male with myelofibrosis on ruxolitinib 10 milligrams twice daily. The spleen is at 4 centimeters without significant abdominal symptoms. He has modest systemic symptoms, including fatigue, weakness, and shortness of breath. His hemoglobin is extremely low at 6.5, assuming that probably means he's transfusion-dependent. Um, his white blood cell count is 14. His platelets are 82. He has 2% blasts in the same mutational profile. What is the immediate course of action? So how, how would you approach this patient, Serge? Well, anemia is a huge problem here. He's uh, probably getting blood uh, often. 6.5 hemoglobin platelets are not that bad. And if I switch to fedratinib, I can help him with the spleen and symptoms, but anemia and, pl and platelet number will probably worsen. Pacritinib is not a bad choice. But if I had a momelotinib, Hopefully that will happen in the near future. Probably that will be the one. Anemia is the usual problem that leads to discontinuation. Number one problem that leads to discontinuation of ruxolitinib in general. So that appears to be a problem here. I would probably go with momelotinib. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think when momelotinib especially becomes available, this will be a very good choice for these patients who have anemia, which we all know is one of the most difficult symptoms to treat. In terms of transplant for this patient, again, this would be sort of a difficult discussion. He is progressing through myelofibrosis, uh, progressing, excuse me, through ruxolitinib. He's 75 years of age. He does have high-risk disease. A lot of it would depend on donor and patient preference. He would be somebody, again, that I would, I would really proceed with caution and do some very careful counseling prior to bringing him to a transplant. So... Casebook 5, Shannon is a 70-year-old female with long-standing history of JAK2-positive ET treated with hydroxyurea. 2018, she starts to present with platelets of 140. Her hemoglobin is 11.8 and white blood cell count is 15. Requiring, and this is in the setting of decreasing her hydroxyurea, which is, is not mentioned on the slide. 
She doesn't have any constitutional symptoms, and she has some mild splenomegaly, about three centimeters below the left costal margin. Her bone marrow biopsy that was done at the time showed two um, plus fibrosis, no increase in blasts, and next-gen sequencing showed TET2 and DNMT3A mutation. So how would you approach this patient if she showed up in your clinic? Well, uh, the, I would not probably go with the transplant first. Uh, she is obviously changing. The platelets are lower. Uh, anemia is there, but uh, probably would stop perhaps hydroxyurea and see whether this will improve. Um, splenomegaly is not a major problem, nor symptoms. Um, maybe even uh, observation. What do you, how do you feel about JAK inhibitors in this setting? I know it, one of the challenges that I think always comes up is that we do see that there's a survival advantage with JAK inhibitors, but also understanding that the patients who would have been enrolled on the comfort studies and many who are started on ruxolitinib who do experience that or some other uh, JAK inhibitor who experience this survival advantage are patients who probably have more symptoms in a bigger spleen. How do you generally approach this rux, how, using a JAK inhibitor in this type of patient? The key for me is the presence of a symptoms. If I have a good sense that the symptoms affect the quality of life, and I do try to spend little time with the patient and use the questionnaire to objectivize that uh, quality of life on a certain scale, this is uh, supported by NCCN guidance as well. Uh, if the symptoms are present, then the JAK inhibitors come to my mind. If the patient has no symptoms, then it, it does not. Uh, the survival benefit, you are correct, was seen in patients that are symptomatic and have a big spleen. I do not extend that to asymptomatic uh, patients or those that don't have a spleen. Mm -hmm. Okay. And of note, just so you look at the difference in the, score, the scoring system for this patient, um, I did put, include the DIPSS, the MISIC, and the MIPS uh, 70 score. So this patient decided to undergo observation. And by 2020, she had worsening symptoms. She had splenomegaly that was 8 centimeters below the left costal margin. Her hemoglobin was 11, platelet count was 90, white blood cell count was 20 to 23 with 2% blast. She's developed some night sweats, no changes in her molecular panel, and remember at this point she's 72. So how would you approach this patient? And now it's easy. She's symptomatic and spleen yep. is big. So, and that uh, certainly happened over time. I would follow patients every two or three months and see how she does, and no question in my mind, the JAK inhibitor at this point. Absolutely. So, you know, what's interesting about this patient is, you know, we would think, oh, well, gee, she's progressing. We should really be thinking about transplant. When you look at the DIPSS 70, the MISEC and the MIPS score, she actually hasn't changed at all. And this is one of those things where it's difficult because we all know that we might check the white blood cell count one day and it's 20 and the next day it's 26 and then it drops back down to 20 and their blasts are 0%, then 2% and 1%. Um, so this patient, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily suggest for transplant. We know that the median time of response for JAK inhibitors is three years. We still have fedratinib. We have other agents, and she's 72 years of age. So it would be a really careful discussion about transplant, but I'm not sure this is a patient I would transplant um, up front. Um, and so the last case is Rebecca is a 60-year-old female with primary myelofibrosis, triple negative, so she does not have a driver mutation. She has splenomegaly at three centimeters below the left costal margin, hemoglobin of 11, Patients of plate, excuse me, platelets of 100, white blood cell count of 15 with 1% blasts. Bone marrow biopsy shows three out of three fibrosis. She has um, no increase of blasts in her marrow, to clarify, 
She has an ASXL1 and an SRSF2 mutation. So this patient's always challenging because when you look at her DIPSS score, she's actually low risk. She's not greater than 65. She doesn't have significant constitutional symptoms, and none of her, her, um, her labs would put her in that category. However, when you do her MIPSS score, she is in a high-risk category based on the presence of the ASXL1 and the RSF2 primarily. How do you approach these patients? Well, she's young, so we first have to say that she has aggressive disease based on the triple negativity and the ASXL1S and SRSF2. These are bad mutations. So the outcome overall is not in her favor that she is going to be stable because she's not symptomatic. So she says, what's wrong with me? I don't have any symptoms, right? But we know that she will progress sooner rather than later. So careful observation, perhaps, for the time being while educating the patients about the need for a transplant in very near future. Because even with the therapies, let's say that she becomes symptomatic and the spleen becomes bigger, we start the JAK inhibitor. Mutational complexity affects the ability of JAK inhibitors as well. There are studies that show that those with the multiple genetic abnormalities do not respond so well to JAK inhibitors. So I will tell the patients, well, we can help you, but we need to be proactive and think about finding a donor for you because you will eventually need a transplant. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's very good. And that, I think these patients are challenging because of that reason. They feel good. They're like, well, why should I go for transplant? And we all, I always tell patients, well, you want to go to transplant before you feel you need it. Um, and a patient like this is always challenging. And it really depends on the person's outlook. I, you know, if she said, I am ready, I really want to go forward with a transplant. I would probably observe her closely and even consider it, as we know from um, this study that looked at the DIPSS score and looked at transplant versus patients who did not receive a transplant. There did seem to be a survival advantage in intermediate one risk. And there, it is something that can be considered in patients with high-risk mutations. But I would not push the transplant really hard. I feel like a lot of times people see high-risk mutations and say, go to transplant. But I think there's sort of more of a, a, an indication to follow closely and move faster. So when something starts to change, even if they don't necessarily cross over that border to become a different DIPSS risk score, um, the, I would say, you know what, things are moving in the wrong direction. We should head forward with transplant. So it's, it's always a challenge to try to understand the appropriate timing and everything for these patients. Um, and what kind of makes my job fun sometimes is you get to have really interesting conversations and really try to understand where a person's coming from. All right, so now for questions and answers. We do have a couple of questions that I think came from online, so we can do those. So the question is, have you ever sequenced between JAK inhibitor based on adverse events or drops in platelet rather than strict progression? Well, the side effects would limit the dosing of the JAK inhibitor. Let's say anemia happens or thrombocytopenia happens with the ruxolitinib or a GI toxicity which may not be controlled well with uh, supportive care med medications, may require those adjustments of hydratinib. None of this is terrible for the overall management of the patients, but can affect the overall outcome. And therefore, yes, it is possible due to side effects to change one therapy to the other, not to wait for strict progression. But it, this overlaps quite a bit. Okay, great. I see we have a question in the audience. Um, so when you see patients in your practice, 
Which scoring system do you tend to use when you're advising a patient regarding transplant timing? Um, A lot of times patients come in saying that on one scoring system, they are low risk and on another one, they are high risk, like the last case you showed. So what kind of a discussion do you have and how do you make decisions based on the scoring system? So I actually review all of them with the patient. I kind of walk through sort of how I walk through here that you know, this is the oldest scoring system, but the limitation is obviously it was prior to Jacopy, um, all the publications that came out. And then I talk about the different influence of some, the DIPS plus, like the additions of that, the driver mutation, and then I go to the next generation, you know, the MIPS scoring system. So I actually try to review all of them with the patients and discuss the caveat. And then you can usually say, well, you know, especially when they have really divergent scoring systems based on DIPSS and MIPSS, you know, a lot of it is just sort of trying to give them the general idea of this is an area that we don't know and this is what we do know. Um, and I have overall found that patients respond well to that. Um, you know, I think that there are not a lot of patients that want me to say, yes, you should go to transplant or no, you shouldn't go to transplant. And they're usually very receptive to the fact that we're existing in a gray area a number of uh, quite a bit, of, you know, quite frequently. So, yeah, I actually use all the scoring systems. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my question is, if you have a patient that transforms with AML, uh, which kinds of uh, around six years old, what kind of bridge therapy do you use to, to, to follow uh, with a bone marrow transplantation for this, this guy? You want to start with that one? Okay, excellent question. Uh, as is listed in the NCCN guidelines, the hypometallation agents should be a backbone. There is a, the same type of expectation with hypometallation agents like Wydeza or Dacogen, as is with the chemotherapy. While the therapy with hypometallation agents usually keep patients outside the hospital, it's less toxic, it's friendly to everybody. Now, we can add, uh, if you have a transplant ready, only in that case, if you have a transplant ready, we can add venetoclax to hypometallation agents because the CR rate goes from about 25-30% to 45%, but it doesn't last long. The CR lasts for a month or two. You have this window of opportunity to transplant the patients. If you don't have a transplant ready, do not use venetoclax. There are five papers so far published that you have a higher CR rate, but it doesn't last long. Myelosuppression sets in. Prolonged myelosuppression leads to sepsis and increased risk of dying. So only in a case where you have transplant ready, I would add venetoclax. If you need to do chemotherapy instead of hypometallation agents, doesn't work or disease is too aggressive, I use cladribine-based regimen. Five days of cladribine IV and sub-QRC for 10 days, for example. Thank you. Very good. Thank, Thank you very much, everyone. everybody. This activity is certified by the Medical College of Wisconsin. This activity is co-provided with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BJB 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.